Hello and welcome to our podcast, Baby Baking and Kid Raising, hosted by myself, Eliza Carr, a passionate midwife, new mama and founder of Bump and Bub, as well as my co-host, Dr. Joseph Scorey, an obstetrician, gynecologist and fertility specialist, as well as a dad of three. Together, we will be discussing topics from fertility through to parenthood and everything in between. Each week, we will be joined by inspiring guests who share their own journeys through fertility, pregnancy, birth and parenthood, as well as educational episodes from us, a midwife and an obstetrician. This episode is sponsored by Bliss Birth. So welcome back to episode two of Baby Baking and Kid Raising. And we left you with a bit of a cliffhanger at the last episode at the first part of Eliza's birth story. And so we're now part two. And we've had everything ready. You know, the birth team was around, the midwife was uh, there, the extraordinaire um, doula mother-in-law was also patiently awaiting this beautiful baby's birth. But alas, this baby wasn't coming. And so I think we'd sort of finished the last little bit of the discussion saying we'd gone into the hospital, we'd uh, spoken to the doctors there and they'd sort of suggested, hey, listen, you need to have this baby. And um, as all doctors tend to do, it's got to be done today. (laughs) I'm glad that you said that. (laughs) Yes. I can pay out on myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. So I know that's kind of where we left off was this strange place of, you know, me having said for so many years, babies come when they're ready to come. Um, And then I was just at this point of being like, I don't know what's right anymore. You know, I have this beautiful midwife who's saying, babies come when they're meant to come, just trust in your body. And then there's, you know, this internal dialogue of being like, but there's no evidence to say that post 42 weeks is safe, or there's very little evidence. And, you know, do I need evidence to to show, you know, this physiological process is normal? Or do I, I don't know what to do. And then I've got this, you know, quote unquote, huge baby. Kind of looking back now, I feel like I sound a little bit melodramatic, but I think this when you have these expectations, and I'm not going to lie, I'm not great with (laughs) expectations being not as how you know how I envisage. But I think yeah, just leaving you know that my beautiful mother-in-law, who I was dying to have at my birth, and we'd been chatting about for so many years, coming to her granddaughter or grandson's birth, yeah, just having my beautiful friends there, and just this whole team, and and not to mention the midwifery care that I'd grown so close to my midwife and, you know, talked through every possible scenario and suddenly she wasn't going to be there. I wasn't going to know anyone in the birth at all in terms of medical professionals. So, yeah, anyway, it was a lot to kind of let go of, but I guess at the end of the day it was the decision that, yeah, we chose to make. And so tell us a little bit about that drive into the hospital with Stuart. Yeah, it was was a bit of a sad one. So my um in-laws were at our house and bless them they were they were there and they were decorating the house and they were saying you're going to be back hopefully tomorrow you're going to go in and have this baby and you'll be back tomorrow or the next day and we're going to you know it's all good and we're we're so excited and we um yeah packed our bags and headed in uh, we I had to go in in the afternoon. In terms of an induction, there's lots of different ways or lots of different methods and whatnot, depending on a whole host of factors. And for me, I had previously had a vaginal examination the day before my induction. So on that Thursday, booked for the Friday for an induction. And my cervix was long and hard and closed, meaning that it might have taken a couple of steps to get to the point of syntocin and drip, which is what most people think of when we think of an induction. So I had to go in and have what's called Cervidil to help ripen and soften my cervix with the aim of softening the cervix enough to break the waters to kind of commence that process. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of women are fearful of an induction of labour, but there are many multiple methods that we can utilise in order to help what we term ripen the cervix. And so I think in the previous podcast I talked about how the cervix needs to gather up a little bit like a skivvy putting it on a child's head. And that process needs to happen before we can actually break the waters. In actual fact, there's a couple of studies that have shown recently that doing a balloon catheter where we actually insert a catheter into the cervix and place two balloons on either side of the cervix and allow for the for the cervix to me- mechanically open up over the course of the evening actually has less rates of caesarean section. But the other thing that we can also do is utilise a hormone called prostaglandin. And this is what we what we do is we place this prostaglandin either in the form of a gel or alternatively, as in your case, a tape, which sits near the cervix and that changes the cervical structure over the course of the evening uh, so that by the morning the cervix is open and ready for us to be able to break the waters. And so generally speaking, we can break the waters if the cervix allows, uh, uh, um, you know, you're about one centimetre dilated and sort of about a one to two centimetres long, we can generally speaking break the waters because that's the first thing that needs to occur during an induction of labour. Yeah, so I went in when we walked in, it just happened to be that one of my beautiful friends, Amanda, who's uh, the educator of the hospital that I had my baby in, another beautiful midwifery educator friend, uh, we had studied together when we were 17 to become midwives. And she, being the educator, works Monday to Friday. She's not on night shifts. But when I got there, she had been rostered onto this night shift or this afternoon shift at 4 p.m., which was just, and it just felt like such a meant to be moment. I was going into a hospital where I knew nobody. And one of my best friends was there to do my induction. And it was just such a. Was it like angels in the background? Literally. Uh... Literally. <laughs> and she's very <laughs> religious. And anyway, I just. Well, there you go. There you go. It was. She, is, she, is a, she is a godsend. Um, and it was, yeah, it was such a, a beautiful moment to have her because she was just like, oh, my God. We were both like, this is crazy. I'm pregnant. Like, it's a real baby. It's really happening. <laughs> so it was just this yeah. this really beautiful moment. And we FaceTimed in my other best friend. We were a little trio through uni. And it was just such a weird but beautiful moment. And I think I was so scared to go in so apprehensive towards this induction and it just it started out so beautifully and it was all COVID so we were all in our masks and I think that but that that set up really I mean it was it was quite terrible we talked about that in the first episode but how COVID restricted not only antenatal care so care during your pregnancy but it was terrible also during during the birth as well in terms of wearing masks should women wear masks uh, whilst they're in birth should you know are women allowed to use gas you know was the gas going to then escape and and go into the lungs of the midwives and the mm. doctors who are working, you know, working, and then they, they would get COVID. So there was a whole range of fear amongst uh, healthcare professionals and even patients themselves or women themselves giving birth about you know what to do and what you can't do. So yeah, masks and and look, masks still we're using masks today. They are they just really create such a barrier between people. They do, yeah. They create a massive barrier, and especially like. When you're 42 weeks pregnant or you're pregnant at any gestation, you're out of breath. You've got this huge baby in your stomach and you've got a mask on. And I know, you know, obviously we, we were thinking much greater scheme than that, but it is it is hard. I'm not going to lie. Mm. It was hard walking around in a mask and especially being induced in a mask. And then you're walking and anyway. So we, yeah, we went in, we went through everything. My cervix was unchanged. Surprise, surprise. I was 42 and one. So I was 15 days post my due date. Um, at this point. So yeah, I had um, the Cervidil popped in. I had a CTG on. Everything was fine. And um, 
you know, relatively straightforward. So the idea was that the servitor was going to go in, we were going to go for a walk and try and get things moving, get something maybe happening. My hope was that maybe the servadil um, was enough to kind of kick off labor potentially and not have to kind of go through with the whole induction process and maybe just maybe that's all my cervix needed, but alas, anyway, we'll get to that. So yeah, popped it in. We went for a big walk. We ordered pizzas, you know, living the life. We were very excited at that point. We were hoping obviously for a baby the next day, which is again, such a weird feeling, I guess, with an induction or a scheduled C-section or something to kind of have a semi-timeline of when you're going to meet your baby is you know, our lives are going to change within the next 24 hours, which is... And it's interesting. I've got a lot of patients who really want things scheduled. In fact, often at that first appointment, some women will come in with a pre preconceived notion that they want to have a caesarean section because they want to have a specific date. Um, but, you know, the actual th- the thing that I always try to explain to them is that sometimes we can actually schedule the date based on an induction of labour as well. Some women really like, you know, knowing exactly the day they're going to have the baby. Other women are like, you know, well, I want to leave it up to chance and up to nature. Mm. You were the nature person. Uh, very much the nature person <laughs> over here. But I also understand completely, I think, you know, I've worked as well in perinatal mental health and I know that a lot of the time mental health can be hugely impacted by not knowing um, and so, yeah, anyway, that's a, that's a whole other topic, but that's definitely something that I know has really helped with perinatal anxiety around not knowing when you're going to, going to go into labour and things. So that's another, yeah, really good chat we should definitely have one day. So the cervical went over, in overnight and, and so the next time that you were examined or you, that they were able to check your cervix was when? Okay, this is when the, this is when the oh. roller coaster started. <laughs> All right, okay. okay, well, I'm strapping myself in. <laughs> okay, so it, we put the servadil and went for a huge walk. Several hours later, I started having contractions. I was thinking, okay, fabulous, you know, early labours, hopefully kicking off, hopefully commencing. Um, and I, Stuart went home because, you know, I kept explaining this is such a long process like, and he wasn't able to stay because we were on the antenatal ward, so he had to go home anyway. But I said, you know, go home, have a few hours sleep. Hopefully, you know, I'm calling you back in at two to three in the morning and we're kicking things off and it's all very exciting. So having these contractions and I decided to have a shower and I remember thinking all afternoon, I just want to wash my face of makeup because who goes into their induction with a face full of makeup? Me, I'm not sure why. But anyway, so we went in, I was washing my face, just about to wash my face and my beautiful friend Amanda, who I had mentioned before, came in and she said, I just have a feeling I need to check baby's heart rate. Can you just come to the door? I was like, just just give me five minutes. I'm just going to wash my face and then I'll come out. She's fine. I'm fine. She was like, no, I just I, ne- I just need to check the baby's heart rate. I'm going to bring in a Doppler. So she comes into the shower with me and I'm thinking, oh, my God, pops the Doppler on. Zadie's heart rate is sitting at about 190. So a little bit too high, a little bit too fast. And I was thinking, okay, maybe it's the heat. You know, I'm having a hot shower. Maybe she's just active, these contractions, who knows. She says, get out of the shower. So I didn't get to wash my face. So I had to walk out dripping wet and she's like oh, I just want to I want to pop the CTG on I just I don't know I'm just not feeling comfortable and I was like oh god here we go whatever fine so I come out I'm laying on the bed sopping wet unwashed face and she pops the CTG on and Zadie's heart rate's pretty high it's sitting around 190 200 so it should be sitting between about 110 150. That's an important thing because a lot of people when they're sitting there and they see the CTG and they see this heart rate sort of jumping around um, often husbands or partners or 
wives will come out of the room and they'll sort of say, oh, my God, the baby's heart rate's jumping around. What's going on? But generally speaking, we want to see the heart rate hover somewhere between 110 and 160. And, and it'll form, generally speaking, what we term a baseline, which is a nice, steady pace of where the heartbeat is. But it'll fluctuate. I think I said this in the previous podcast anywhere between 5 to 15 beats around. So when a bubba's having a heart rate that's above 190, it can mean nothing. It could just mean the baby's super active and just having a bit of a fun time in there swimming around waiting for uh, for an exit. Or alternatively, it could be a sign that the baby potentially might be distressed because just like us, if we see someone scary in a dark alley, our heart rate starts jumping around. So if we're nervous, if we're anxious, if of course we're threatened, then our heart rate will go as a result of adrenaline. And that happens to babies as well. So understandably, your uh, angelical midwife uh, <laughs> was a, a little bit worried about Bubba with that 190 beats per minute. So the right thing, of course, to do was to just double check. Yeah, absolutely. And so she's popped the CTG on, so the monitor's around my tummy, um, and I was having a fair few contractions. So I was having about five contractions in 10 minutes. They weren't overly painful, but they were there and I was noticing them. Um, And every time I had a contraction, Zadie's heart rate went through the roof and kind of stayed there and didn't really come back down. So at that point, I stayed on the CTG, sopping wet for, I think, about two hours, um, we had an obstetrician come back in, then we had someone else come to review, then we had midwives, and it was a Friday, late Friday, it was like. And was the Cervidil still in at this point? Yeah, it was still in at this point. And I was a little bit, obviously, my baby's safety came first, but I was a little bit hesitant for them to just take it out because I felt like we just started this process. My cervix was very unripened. So I was thinking, you know, if she's reacting this badly to something you know, external and my contractions so light. At that point, I don't know. I just felt in my head that this was not going to go well and um, whether or not that played a part in it, I don't know. I just felt like, yeah, very early labour and she was not happy already um, and, yeah. So eventually after a few hours, I called Stuart back in and and when I called him I said, I'm going to have to have a C-section. I just know it. And he said, Eliza, like, calm down. This is not the case, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he came in and we had another doctor come in and she decided to take the cervidil out, see if that helped with anything. It didn't. Unfortunately, the contractions kept ramping up. And by that time I was having about six to seven contractions in a 10 minute period. So there wasn't you know, enough rest time for baby or enough yeah, time in between the contractions. Yeah. And I think that's, I think I often say this to patients that every single time you have a contraction, well, in fact, the journey of labour, I liken it to a baby who's got to get from one side of an Olympic swimming pool to another side of an Olympic swimming pool. A baby actually doesn't care how long that, that journey takes. It could take five hours, it could take 12 hours, it could take 18 hours. But every time you have a contraction, it's like putting the baby underwater for a short little bit and then sort of coming down the pool with the baby underwater for about one or two centimetres. And then when you don't have a contraction, it's bringing the baby out of the pool so the baby can rest. Now, ideally, we want to have sort of five contractions in every sort of 10 minutes, which allows the baby to go under the water for a little bit, but also to come out and rest up a little bit and then you know, get its oxygen back and feel quite happy and then be able to continue the journey of labour. But when you're dunking the baby underwater all the time and it's happening sort of more frequently, like you said, six or seven minutes, you can imagine if we did that ourselves, we'd get actually quite fatigued. And so that's what generally speaking happens when you're having these contractions that are happening so frequently that the baby doesn't have enough time to break and rest in between in between those contractions. So removing the cervidil, which obviously is a hormone, 
uh, that potentially could be bringing you into labour was the right thing to do. And so the hope would have been, of course, that Zadie would have just uh, settled down a little bit. But tell us a little bit what did happen. So she did not, um, unfortunately, and my body was just kind of, yeah, full swing contracting. Um, and at that point I was kind of like, oh, okay, great, you know, my body's finally doing this. I think I'd spent, you know, the last week being like, why, why is my body not doing this and just feeling almost angry at my body for not going into labor. And I was finally having contractions and I was like excited because it was early labor, but Zadie was not playing ball. So we, they decided to give me what's called subutamol, which to help relax the uterus muscles and to try and see if that would, yeah, relax the uterus muscles enough to stop contracting as many times in a 10 minute period and give Bubba a bit of a rest. Um, So I'd had that shot then they that didn't wasn't effective too quickly. So then they decided to pop a drip up. So then I had IV lines and I had a drip in, had sabutamol in. Then they told me, then the obstetrician came in and was like, you know, I think you need panadine fort to try and relax you. And I kept saying, oh no, I'm fine. I'm not, you know, I'm not in very I'm not in much pain. Like this, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Nope, need to take it. Cool. So then I had panadine fort. And by this time I just felt like, holy moly, it went from my natural home birth now, I've got a drip, I've got sabutamol, I've got cervidil, I've got panadine fort in my system all within this, yeah, short period of time. And, and look, you know, sometimes when you do, when you are having so frequent contractions and all the baby's distressed, we do give it a, a medication. Now, often it's tibutaline or in some cases sabutamol. And what that does is just relax the uterus. And as I was saying, when you're dunking the baby underwater, the hope is that if you give this medication that it stops the contractions and allows the baby to sit on the edge of the pool and just wait a little bit just to build up their oxygen reserves so that we can go back into the pool and start swimming again in order to get to the finish line. And so that would have been the hope, but of course it wasn't. I, and look, you know, it's difficult as well because you've come from such a wanting such a, a natural sort of physiological a, a birth to now really um, having a very medicalized sort of birthing experience, which, you know, and it's also difficult because you don't have the care provider that you trusted for so long during the pregnancy. Yeah, exactly. Um, to be there to support you as well. And, and also, you're fortunate because you're a midwife, but if you weren't a midwife, what the hell are they doing to me yeah. would be the other thing that you would be thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And I think because we'd gone in at, you know, close to shift change. So we saw, you know, by this point it was like one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. And we, you know, we obviously hadn't slept for that whole day, that whole night then. And then, you know, we're going through shift changes. We'd seen multiple doctors. Then, you know, the registrar had had their senior come in because my CTG wasn't great. And then we'd had midwife changes. And then, you know, you're just seeing so many staff in such a short period of time and all of this kind of medical, you know, all of these things are kind of happening. So I had all of that, um, and then the contractions started to settle down, but it took a very long time, which I think was quite unusual. Um, and eventually at about, yeah, 2, two to 3 a.m. that next morning, so I'd had the cervidil at 4 p.m., so it was almost 12 hours later, and she started to calm down. We eventually took the CTG off. My contractions were pretty calm by that point, but I just kept thinking, okay, so, you know, w- what's next? What are we going to do next if she'd reacted like this, you know, so soon? Then it was suggested that I take a sleeping tablet, in hindsight, I wish I hadn't, but I took a sleeping tablet um, and then just felt like so groggy and sick and horrible. 
um, and I was still contracting. So if anyone's, it's pretty yucky experience. Obviously, taking a sleeping tablet at night with an induction can be wonderful because, you know, you can actually get a little bit of rest and then you can wake up in the morning and have the energy. And I have, yeah, you know, worked with so many patients that that's been wonderful for. But I think taking it at, yeah, when I was there, it was probably 3.30 a.m. and I knew that they were coming to break my waters at about 6. So it was like this very groggy time. Anyway, woke up at about 5 o'clock after maybe 20, 30 minutes sleep. Um, with contractions, which were good, and Zadie was okay. I had the CTG popped back on and she was coping well, which was great. Um, and I had a lovely um, obstetrician come in at yeah about 6 o'clock to try and break my waters. And um, unfortunately, my cervix, because, you know, we'd taken that cervical out and the contractions hadn't done too much um, to change my cervix. But she was able to admit, so she was able to pop in like one finger, the tip of one finger, and she thought that she could break my waters. Um, but she needed midwives, midwives, um, to help with fundal pressure. So again, I think it's this, it's this strange thing. I, obviously, I've seen all of these things. I've been a part of all of these things. But to be someone who's laying on the bed having fundal pressure, which is, you know, um, a bit of pressure on your tummy, helping to push baby down, helping to push the head into the cervix um, to help break the waters. It's it's just such a different experience. And I have so much empathy for women because it was horrible. Again, it was a horrible experience. And I don't want to, I know I keep coming back to this and I think it's the reason I haven't shared my birth story because I don't want someone to hear, oh, Eliza had this fundal pressure and she said it was this horrible experience. And now they're saying, I need that. I think, you know, birth is so different for everyone. But for me, at that time, it was, a, it, was, it was bloody horrible. And this is one of the things I think about social media and about podcasting and about what we see on TV is that it is sensationalised. We're not trying to sensationalise it. This is a true story. But the things that happen to certain women during their birthing process doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen to you. I mean, for example, I've got lots of patients where we see abnormalities on a, on an ultrasound scan, you know, whether it be at 13 weeks and 21 weeks. And I tell my patients, please do not Google because as soon as you Google, you'll go down a rabbit hole yeah. and that rabbit hole will take you somewhere that you don't need to be because it is your baby, it's not their baby, and it's not their experience, it's your experience. And inevitably, what, what we might be seeing now might eventuate to be nothing. And so don't start Googling. And so the same sort of thing, just because this experience is happening to Eliza doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen to you. Absolutely, 100%. And I've been a part of many beautiful inductions. Like, you know, as I'm going to talk about, mine was pretty horrendous, but I've been a part of so many beautiful inductions that, yeah, it's definitely not something to fear because of you, because you've heard um, negative experiences. And like you said, like you see on the on every movie, every show, birth is like this wild, crazy, out-of-control process. In actual fact, it's often very slow and hopefully calm and it just, yeah, just doesn't happen quite like the movies or even like I'm telling you, you know, over this, I'm talking about over at the moment a 16-hour period, you know, in this, in this short amount of time. So it wasn't like one thing after the other and everything's like a race. It was slow and a bit frustrating. <laughs> So was the um, was the registrar able then to break the waters? So she was. Um, well, she thought she was. So I had fundal pressure, um, which was very uncomfortable, and I couldn't relax. It was, uh, yeah, I found it very painful. So they gave me the gas, and at that point I'd never tried gas before, and it was like 6 a.m. in the morning. Not even a sneaky Not even one. A sne- <laughs> no. Uh, I can't you and admit I to that anyway on here. If so. No, you and I are very good. Like I've never, ever, 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 and even <laughs> when my wife was in labour I didn't, and I know many partners will have it. Don't ever do it. 
many, many partners will, will uh, but yeah, that's okay. Quite interesting. So you've never had gas before, never had and gas. so and it's six a.m. haven't even haven't even eaten breakfast yet, and so I'm sucking on this gas. And she's saying, just take you know a few deep breaths before we start, just try and relax because it's you know it's obviously very hard to do a vaginal examination and break someone's waters if they are you know, tense and and very uncomfortable. So I'm sucking on this gas and within like three long sucks on this gas, I, uh, I was, I was somewhere else. I was in my own little world. It was holy moly. So they were doing this fundal pressure. I had my eyes closed and she was breaking my waters and I (laughs) opened my eyes and I said to Stuart, quick, they're about to start. And he says, no, they've already started. You're almost done. Just try and lay still. And I was like, but what do you mean? Mumford and Sons is coming on right now. And I genuinely thought, <laughs> I genuinely thought I was at a festival. I thought Mumford and Sons were playing and Stuart and I needed to get to the stage, which was like this wild trip of a ride there. So it was very strange. The, the obstetrician. They don't call it laughing gas for nothing. Lord, eh? I was, yeah. So anyway, I got through it. So if you can have the gas, have the gas. Golden stuff. Um so she broke my waters, very little lycor came out, which the scan the previous day had shown that my the waters around the baby weren't that low, so she was a little bit conf- confused about why there wasn't much water coming out. Baby's head wasn't low enough to fully kind of plug it. So she then at that point said, let's put on a fetal scalp electrode, so a little clip into Bubba's head. Do you want to explain FSC? Yeah, so often we will, um, particularly if we're not able to trace baby's heart using an external Doppler, so that's those little things that we put on on the belly during a CTG to pick up the baby's heartbeat via ultrasound scan, which is that typical noise that you hear when you do your antenatal visits or alternatively when you're um, in labour. And sometimes if we can't get the baby's heart rate specifically, much as when you've ever had, if any of you have ever had an ECG, which is an electrical trace of your own heart, will put little dots on your chest. That takes an electrical signal from within the body that directly measures the heart rate. So, of course, our heart is an electrical conducting system. And so that that electricity goes across our whole body. And we can pick that up, whether it be on your finger, whether it be on your chest or alternatively on your head. And so sometimes what we can do is place a little electrode in baby's head just that sits under the scalp or under the skin um, and that will pick up the baby's heart rate specifically. So it's it's 100% certain that this is the baby's heart rate. We can't interpret it as the mum's heart rate and we know that what, what we're getting is a signal directly from bub's heart and it often helps us in being able to distinguish between a mum and bub's heart rate. I think at this point in time your obstetrician was thinking, well, I haven't really confirmed that the waters are broken. If I can put a fetal scalp electrode on, well, then I know that the waters have to be broken because, of course, there's going to be waters or the bag of water uh, before the baby. So if you if you are putting a little tiny electrode in, the waters therefore have to be gone. Yeah, so that's exactly what happened. Um, and then, yeah, the whole mindset again of, oh, my God, now I've got a drip in, I've got my FSC on, I've got CTG straps on, I've got just something coming out of every part of me already. So we did that, said he was fine, my waters were clear, fine, perfect. I asked if we could wait a couple of hours or I wanted to wait a couple of hours um, to see if, you know, my body would kind of labour by itself without having to start the drip. Um, And the contractions were coming, they were good, but by about a couple of hours later, they were still pretty, uh, like, mild. I could still talk through them, I was eating, I was having a great time. Um, And, yeah, it didn't happen. So we decided or I decided to have... Um, the drip popped up. So to start the syntocin on drip to try and increase 
um, my contractions a little bit, bring them a little bit closer, a little bit more intense. And at this point, my other beautiful midwifery educator, best friend, Joeha, she came um, into the hospital. And I think it was just so good having someone there, especially that, yeah, that I knew, but also that knew there was a midwife. There was a very senior midwife. You know, Stuart was obviously amazing, but he was there as the dad. Um, and so, yeah, it was just amazing having Joeha there and being able to talk to her. And I was watching the CTG way too closely. So I kind of handed that role over to her and was like, can you watch the CTG? Because I think that's the other thing. It, it was as a smaller hospital, but it, I would go a very long time between seeing a midwife at this point. You know, she would, she had three other patients in labor um, and I was still in early labor. So uh, yeah, yeah, we were by ourselves for a lot of it. So, yeah, Jueha came in. My drip was started. The contractions started to increase. It was still early labor, so it was all still like a little bit of fun, little, you know, exciting and hopeful of, you know, all these things. And I'd written into the hospital to ha- to um, request or ask if I could have a second support person being a birth photographer. Um, and they had said she can come in um, if you swap out with your other friend. So if Joeha swapped out with Beth, the birth photographer, she could come in. Anyway, it was nowhere near calling a birth photographer time because it's still very early days. But anyway, that was I knew that, you know, she could come in when the time was right, which was awesome. And so, yeah, the contractions kind of started to ramp up. They started to get more intense. And the best thing was that I was quite surprised about was that Zadie was happy as Larry like her the CTG or the at that point the FSC so the monitor going directly onto Zadie was picture perfect text were perfect so you know I was thinking okay great maybe maybe I don't know last night wasn't her night but we're on to something better and she's feeling it this morning so at this point we we're also shattered like we hadn't slept for you know we came in the whole, the whole previous day we we're awake the whole night we we're awake and then it's you know around nine o'clock in the next morning um with no sleep and yeah so we kind of just labored early labor it started to get slowly more intense they were upping the drip so as you said joe i guess there's this fine balance of trying to find where your contractions are really effective and they're changing the cervix and baby's happy versus you know a bit too much of the drug when you know baba gets unhappy or distressed or there's too many contractions so we're trying to find that balance um but you know initially it was being turned up every 30 minutes so the drip would go up and I was that woman because I've obviously been on the other side of it many times, but every time she'd knock on the door, I'd be like, oh, no, it's going up, you know, knowing that with the aim of intensifying the contractions. Um, But it was also exciting at that point. So it was all happy and good and we were, you know, it was a beautiful time, I guess, in that early labor. Around about 12 12 p.m., I think it was, maybe 1 1 p.m., there was a change of shifts, change of midwives, and I had the most amazing midwife come on. Her name was Ashley. And I had never met her before, but she was just someone that walked in the room and was like, you know, we're going to have a baby. It's going to be amazing. And she was just so beautiful. And I think going through this whole process, I've learned so much about how, you know, I hope that I was always a good midwife, but I hope that, you know, there's so many things that you can learn and take from being the person on the other side. And she was just so confident and beautiful. And I loved it. And she was just like, tell me what you want. Like, let's sit down and chat about it. What's your ideals here? And I was like, well, nothing's ideal here, but, you know, let's chat about what I would like. Um, anyway, she was brilliant. So she did a vaginal examination and I was about three centimeters. Um, I was good, but I was not going to lie. I was a bit disheartened. 
I think it's important to know that the time frame from, say, when you when the cervix is just one centimetre mm. to the time that it's three centimetres is very variable in women. And, <laughs> you know, this notion that we're on a clock and we have to have the baby by such a certain time is is a bit of a misnomer. It is, it is a slow race. And like I said before with the Olympic-sized pool, we don't care, actually. We're not looking for a world record. We're not looking for the gold medal here. We're, we're just wanting to get to the other side safely. Mm. And so this notion, some women will go, oh, I'm only two centimetres. God, I've got so long to go. But, you know, invariably some women can go from three centimetres to fully dilated within quickly. You know, two yeah. minutes, mm. yeah, re- really quickly. Uh, whereas generally speaking, as you said before, it is a sl- generally speaking a slow, slow race. Mm. So especially first even though time. you were dis- first time, yeah, month. even though you were disheartened, it, it, you still you were doing okay at this point. Mm, yeah. And obviously, Ashley, Ashley was a good support too. Brilliant support. And she was like, "Oh my god, three centimeters! This is amazing!" And I was like, "Oh my god, I'm what? I'm still in early labor. This is it's getting <laughs> painful now." And um, so at that point, I popped on the. TENS machine, which was it was amazing. Oh my gosh, I'd recommend everyone get a TENS machine before they go into labor. It was, yeah, it was just so great. <laughs> I don't know. It was just wonderful. Um, so I had that on. I knew that I wanted to get in the water when things got more intense, which you can't with a TENS machine. So I wanted to kind of utilize it in that early labor. It just made things bearable, to be honest. Like the contractions were really ramping up. You know, my the oxytocin was nearing its maximum <laughs> maximum dosage um, and yeah the contractions are just so strong and I could feel it in my back I could feel it in my pelvis I could feel it in my front and the TENS machine just made it so much more bearable and it also I think which is another amazing factor it just it takes your mind off it a little bit like it's a different sensation and obviously that's what it's made to do um, but yeah I would yell at Stuart quickly press the boost button press the boost button <laughs> when a contraction would happen which gives you know an extra surge a little bit more intensity and I'm sure that that uh, phrase has probably been shouted an awful lot. By about two o'clock the contractions were very frequent. I was having about six contractions in a 10-minute period. They felt very strong um, and to me they felt like I couldn't go up anymore on the drip. I felt like they were taking my breath away. I couldn't talk. I couldn't move through them. They were very, um, they just felt yeah very, very full on at that point Um, and that's when kind of labor started. i for me, I felt like that's when all the <laughs> jovialness of it all kind of stopped. I don't re- fully remember much around that time. I just remember going into my own little zone a bit and using the TENS machine and Stuart and Joy Hill would take turns of like massaging and just holding my hands. And um, yeah, it was it was pretty intense from about two o'clock. And, you know, the thing about pain relief in terms of labour, it is, it's, you know, important to sort of maybe explore the different options. And, and the TENS machine is one great option, as you said, you know, it, TENS stands for transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. And what it does is it sort of mixes up all the signals coming from the pain fibres from the uterus going to the brain. So if you've got these electrodes that are sitting on your skin, they sort of scramble the messages coming from the, the uterus. And so not only does it do that, but it also releases natural endorphins, which, you know, it's a bit like morphine and sort of dampens down your, your pain response. So these are the sort of things you can employ. While we're on the subject of TENS and how wonderful they are, I wanted to mention our brilliant sponsor of today's episode, Bliss Birth, which happens to be where I hired my TENS machine from for my very own birth. The process of hiring one was so simple. I chose from a four or eight week hire and it was sent immediately and arrived within two days, much to my excitement. 
I know personally that there's no way I could have gotten through my own induction that went for 20 plus hours without this device. As a midwife, I always knew they were powerful and have been recommending TENS Hire for birth for so many years. But wow, I guess experiencing the power of it firsthand just really cemented how pivotal they can be. Blissbirth is run by an amazing woman and mama, Ariel. Ariel started Blissbirth around six years ago and has helped thousands of women in Australia have access to the L10s for their own births. Even if you plan on having an epidural or pain relief in labour, the 10s can be so pivotal for that early labour stage and beyond. Personally, in my experience, they also help mamas stay at home longer in that early labour period, which could be so amazing. Ariel has given us a discount code for 10% off their entire website, which is amazing. Simply use BBKR at checkout and see the show notes below for more. Now, let's dive back into the episode. You know, all over the world, labour is called labour for a reason because it is like work. And so, you know, if you go to any 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 part of the world and ask them what do they call you know giving birth, it's it's labour and it's painful. And unfortunately, in some cases, you know, you do need to you resort to different types of methods in order to reduce your pain symptoms. But you were getting to a point now where obviously it was quite uncomfortable, very uncomfortable, and very painful. And again, you know. This is just my birth story, but for me personally, I wanted not to have pain relief if I could. If I could avoid pain relief, that was my my goal. But again, I knew that you know birth is unpredictable, and for some women, knowing that they can have an epidural early on is you know is fantastic for them. But for me, I really I wanted to give it a really good hot red crack with no pain relief, um, except for gas. So yeah, at this point, it was pretty painful. We waited um, about five hours before the next vaginal examination. My lovely midwife was like, let's just give your body the best chance we can. You know, Let's just wait it out. There's no need to do anything sooner. Baby's happy. You're okay. You're laboring well. So about yeah, 5, 5 p.m. or so we did a, or maybe 6 p.m., we did another VE. And at that point, she thought, and I also thought that I was in transition, like I was losing the plot a little bit. And by transition, we mean that kind of that last period of labor between eight and 10 centimeters. I was losing it. I was screaming every contraction. I couldn't get under control. I couldn't, you know, I'd done all of this beautiful breathing techniques. There was no breathing. Like I was just screaming. Um, and it was just so, so painful by that point. Um, and I just kept thinking, okay, okay. And Ashley kept saying it. And but so did Stuart and Joey, you know, like, this is amazing. Like you're progressing so well. Like look at the change in your body and your, you know, how you're reacting to things. And I was like, okay, okay. So we did, did this vaginal examination kind of expecting to be, you know, this eight to 10 centimeters or at least like six to seven. And my cervix was unchanged, meaning that for five hours of this labor, which was so intense, we were in and out of the shower, we were squatting on the ball, we were doing everything, you know, completely upright, no pain relief, hadn't started the gas doing everything to kind of give my body, you know, the best chance. I was using gravity, nothing, completely unchanged cervix. Um, and so at that point I just felt so devastated. I just remember crying and and Ashley was just saying to me like, you know, you never know, you know, from three centimeters, exactly like you said, Joe, you never know, like the next VE you could be fully dilated. Let's just stay positive. And I just kept saying, I need a C-section. I know, I know this isn't going to, yeah, I just know something's not right here. These contractions have been so hard for so long and my cervix is completely unchanged. And yeah, I just felt so, so disheartened at that point. And I remember just bursting into tears. And then I remember Stuart crying, which bless him, he never cries. He's not a crier. And he was crying and he's like, I'm just so sorry. And I want to take some of your pain. And it was just. It is very hard for, for partners, you know, and, and also you support people because here is someone you love, you care for, 
in any other situation, you just want to wrap up, cuddle, and just mm. get them out of this this pain. Like you know, if you, if you I suppose if that, uh, something had fallen on their leg, you'd want to lift the lift the thing off their leg and sort of rush them to hospital. And in this scenario here, you just know you actually do feel helpless. I mean, I was very fortunate that my wife had you know, very efficient, quick labours because I reckon I wouldn't have survived either. I would have been a bit like Stuart and started to burst into tears too. So it is very difficult and and particularly for males, I think. You know, I don't think we're what we haven't historically been wired to be involved in birth um, and it is such a foreign thing to be involved in this whole process. Our dads were never part of it. And, and, and so now we're in this situation where in actual fact we're part of a birth experience that generations before were never part of. So I can understand how he felt. But um, So what were you thinking then at three centimetres? What was the plan moving forward? Um, the obstetrician had come back in. She was back on shift from the next day, the one who wasn't so, so kind to me with my um, potential shoulder dystocia. So the, mm. she had come back in and I just remember being like, oh, God. And she said, you know, you've been doing this for a long time now. It was 12 hours ago. We broke your waters. Your baby might be happy, but things aren't progressing, blah, blah, blah. She was very – um. You didn't have a Dr. Joe in your life. I didn't have basically. a Dr. Joe. See? <laughs> I didn't have you. So it was – yeah, she wasn't – I didn't have a great experience with her. I'm not going to lie. Um, yeah. So, yeah, she was like, you know, you, you, things we'll, – we'll check. She, basically her plan was we'll do another vaginal examination in two hours. She said, you know, I think you need to have an epidural and just try and relax and – you know, at that point, I wasn't ready to give up, even though I felt very disheartened. I wasn't ready to give up my no no drugs plan. Yes. So I decided to have the gas. I was in the shower, which was amazing. The shower, oh, and again, that's another thing that is we'll chat about in another podcast. But like hot water is so so brilliant for pain relief. Absolutely, and that, I think that's one of the reasons why having uh, being in submerged in water is quite good too. Mm, absolutely, uh, again, it sort of scrambles the signals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually, I had asked for my birth photographer to come in at that point, I, even though I was only three centimeters. I just felt like I, if if the plan was to have a VE in two hours, and there wasn't like you're going to have a C section, but I just felt like she should come now because I don't think things are going very well, and I'd love some pictures of labor. Um, so she came in and sneakily I won't say what hospital I was at but they let both of them in which is amazing so I had Beth I had Joeha and I had Stuart um this beautiful little team and yeah in the shower I remember Joeha was holding one shower hose on my back because there's often two shower hoses I had one on my tummy and Stuart was standing there with like a book or something just fanning because it was so hot so I had this going on for an hour just laboring in there with the gas because you can take often take gas in the in the shower which was amazing after two hours, she just the obstetrician hadn't come back in, so we just kept going, kept going. You were happy, probably. She I was happy, but I was also like, <laughs> I was just dying by that point in terms of exhaustion. Like it had been so yeah. long between sleep and this, like the contractions were. I just remember thinking, holy moly, like they can't get more intense. But they they did yeah. pop the drip up. The drip was at maximum, so the absolute maximum that it can go at. And I just felt like my body wasn't getting any rest, but Zadie was seemingly happy, which was phenomenal. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I had this, you know, yeah, I had this thing in the back of my head just being like, you know, if you're not progressing, then, you know, what are we going to do here? So about almost four hours later, so that was another four hours post that vaginal examination and Ashley had to go off shift, which I was devastated about. Um, but she was like, I'm going to come back in the morning. You're going to have a baby in your arms. It's going to be amazing and I can't wait to see you. And that was, yeah, that was beautiful. So everyone was pretty tired at this point, pretty knackered. Um, yeah. And we did a, another vaginal examination. 
I think it was just before Ashley went off shift and um, completely unchanged again. So no changes to my cervix and it had been like, you know, as you said, labor, the hardest marathon of my life. I was shattered and just exhausted and, yeah, done everything with no pain relief at this point. I was just so over it. So what was it? What was the decision point at that point? So the decision was I had an obstetrician come in um, we were back to the lovely obstetrician, so they kept kind of alternating because I was there for so bloody long. Um, and she came back on and she was, she just said, you know, what I'd really like to do is for you to get an epidural and just leave you for another two to four hours. No, she said, sorry, she said four hours. Um, so that would bring it to around 2 a.m. And at 2 a.m., if you're still unchanged, we'll go for a, a, a cesarean section. But I just think that you're so tense and you, you're screaming bloody murder, which I was. You know, I know there's so much talk about like relaxed face, relaxed body, you know, relaxed cervix. There was none of that in my case. It was just. And look, can I, can I just say that sometimes I will say that my patients as well about having a, an epidural. I, I, wanna, I want you to imagine that your pelvis is like a, a basketball hoop and that the pelvic floor is a little bit like the netting of the basketball hoop, right? If you imagine you're about to do a slam dunk, and as you're just about to slam dunk, I'm holding the netting really tightly underneath that hoop, that ball's not going to drop through the hoop. And it's very similar to a baby's head trying to descend through the pelvis, through the pelvic floor, and obviously out, out into the outside world. And often having an epidural, I don't want people to be scared of having an epidural, even if it's not for pain relief, but more to help facilitate with the birthing process because it is akin to me letting go of the netting and allowing the baby's head, allowing that basketball to fly through the basketball hoop and outside the netting so you can score a two-pointer or hopefully a (laughs) three-pointer. So the same sort of thing when we're offering that epidural, it's not because we're thinking you're not going to cope and we don't want you to have a natural birth. It's actual fact sometimes allowing us or giving the opportunity the baby's head to descend through that pelvis rotate move around get into the right position extend descend rather through the pelvic floor so that you can actually birth appropriately so four hours after obviously having had the epidural and also the hormone drip where were we at then i was like okay cool let's get an epidural because i at this point also am not coping it's this the pain was out of control and there was no progression so i didn't yeah there was no not really many other options so I had the anaesthetist come in. She was a beautiful South African lady and Stuart South African, been around many a South African. I just love their accent. I just, she walked in and I was like, okay, great. At least she's here to help. And she just was beautiful and jovial as many South Africans are. Um, and she, at this point, yeah, it was about 10, 10.30 maybe. And I had, yeah, so she came in. I had previously had an ovarian cyst many years ago that popped and I, I was in hospital and I had a um, morphine, I had a, a drip and I had morphine given to me and I had an anaphylactic reaction. So my throat closed Whoa. and I Jeez. was unconscious and it was ho- horrible experience. Yeah. And I hadn't fully thought about the fact that if I had an epidural that there might be a potential issue here. So I came in yeah. she said, you know, any reactions? I told her and she was like, oh, well, okay, it's going to be a little while now because we need to think about what, what to do here. So fentanyl, which is what she was going to give me with the epidural is a derivative of morphine. And she was scared that I was going to have this same reaction. Reaction, yeah. Yeah. So she, and she was liaising with the hospital in Randwick that I was previously at when this happened and what to do. And she was liaising with another anaesthetist to come up with, you know, a concoction to give me that would hopefully not result in an anaphylactic reaction. Mm. So by this point, yeah, I was just laboring. It was, I was just wait, we were just waiting for this lovely lady to come in and give me an epidural. And she'd come up with a concoction 
Um, and yeah, I eventually had it in again. I was at this point sucking on the gas when she was trying to put my um, epidural in and I was tripping out something chronic. Like I had to stop on the gas. It was <laughs> a wild time. I thought, I thought there was cats in the room. It was all so weird. Anyway, exhaustion and gas and I was just losing my mind a little bit. So I'm stopping on the gas and I'm trying to sit still and again, a lot of empathy for women because holy moly, sitting still during a contraction while there's a needle going into your back, pretty intense. So we're sitting there and sorry, previous to that, we'd obviously signed the waiver that, you know, you have to do and the the, anether just talks you through all the risks and the very, very, very rare complications that can go wrong within uh, an epidural, one being, um, you know, paralysis and things along that line, which is very rare. But, you know, we signed that, no issues. Then once the epidural was in, it was pretty quick to get some relief. Um, But I had this one kind of patch on my stomach on the right-hand side that all of the pain was going to and I could just, it was just, I was still screaming through the contractions, but it was only this one side of my, Mm. and I couldn't move obviously because I was, you know, had an epidural. So I was laying on the bed screaming for this, this one side. And she kept explaining it that the reason it felt so painful was because all the other, I don't know, nerve endings were kind of pushing the pain there in a way. I don't know. So she kept having to come in like every five to 10 minutes and try and adjust. And she was pushing a manual dose of um, the medication and she was just trying to get it right because, yeah, trying not to cause, you know, all the things that can happen with an epidural. Anyway, so she kept kind of giving me a dose and a dose and it finally blocked that side. And then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, out of absolutely nowhere, everything went numb. So I could only move my hands and I could only move my, my face and everything went completely paralyzed. I, could, I had no feeling of through my entire body. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was, it was horrible. So at that point, yeah. this is like maybe 11 PM the next night. So again, shattered four million medications in my body, just no. And then yeah, by this point, the epidural, um, and she, started to get understandably a little bit concerned. I was concerned. I couldn't move. And it was probably the scariest feeling I've ever had, you know, and and Stuart was saying, but I just signed the waiver that said it's a very rare risk. Like, is she paralyzed? Like what's happening? And it all just kind of of got, yeah, it was very scary very quickly. And because I couldn't feel my chest rising, I couldn't, I couldn't breathe properly. I just felt like I I couldn't get my my lungs to work. It was the strangest scariest feeling I've ever encountered and I kept touching my legs and they were just felt like meat it was so weird and so horrible and I just yeah I was crying hysterically by that point I was having so many anxiety attacks I've never really had a panic attack before but I just couldn't stop breathing and so I had a um, monitor on my um, finger monitoring my heart rate and my heart rate was sitting at about 200 and Zadie's heart rate was sitting at about 150 so my heart rate was 50 50 beats above my baby's heart rate and it's important to realise that, I mean, the, 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 the reason in part why you were having such a bad reaction to the epidural was because, mm-hmm. of course, you're allergic to morphine yeah. and the doctor yeah. was trying to compensate for yeah. that. And also you'd had this sort of patchy block which yeah. had allowed that one section that was just quite painful. So, mm. you know, this is not normal. I've no, not I've never seen. This before. No, no it's, nev- it's not something that, uh, you know, is you would expect. Absolutely It's not. certainly something I've never seen and, of course, you know, I care for over 300, 350 women a year. So mm-hmm. this is a very unusual situation that we find ourselves in. It is. And because it was so unusual, I was, I, I just kept saying to Stuart, like, I'm paralyzed. This is like, what are we going to mm-hmm. do? And I, and I looked at him at one point and was like, you, you're going to have to look after the baby. Like, this is insane. This is horrendous. I can't believe this has happened. Well, very emotional. Um, and yeah, it was just the most horrendous experience. And so she, at the end, was kind of confident that it was, 
or not at the end, but like a couple of hours in after adjusting things and whatnot, she was confident that it was just um, something that would stop as soon as the medication stopped. But there was also this, again, like this bizarre kind of pull, I guess, between I knew that I had to go for a C-section. I think everyone in the room um, knew I had to go for a C-section eventually because, you know, but if she'd stopped the epidural at that point, um, even just to see if everything came back, then if I went for an ep- then if I went for a C section, I wouldn't have pain relief on board. So it was this fine line between, yeah, me being absolutely terrified and knowing that if she stopped it, then yeah, the whole C section thing. So anyway, we I begged for the doctor to come back in and give me a vaginal examination after about two and a half, three hours. So it was about one o'clock in the morning. And just said, please, please take me to theatres. Like I can't do this. This is and, and even if I am ten centimeters dilated, I can't push out a baby. I can't feel anything. I could not move. I was laying on my back, couldn't move. They were trying to move me from, you know, my left side to my right side, and I had I couldn't participate in any capacity, which is the scariest feeling I've ever had. The doctor came back in. She was so lovely. She did a, another examination and, again, I was unchanged. In fact, my cervix had actually swollen a little bit, so I'd even, quote, unquote, gone backwards a little bit. Um, and Zadie had moved into a posterior position, meaning that her back was on my back. And, yeah, there was very little chance of anything kind of positively happening here towards this vaginal birth. Yeah, and look, uh, you know, this is always, uh, you know, it's always difficult. I mean, even in my own practice, you know, I have an emergency cesarean section rate that sort of hovers somewhere between nine to fifteen percent, which is actually very low. Very low. Um, but you know, there, there's only several reasons why we need to do an emergency cesarean section, and one of them is in part because the baby's distressed, and quite clearly that was not the case with Zadie. But the other thing is where where you're not, the cervix is not changing, and in this scenario here. Um, Zadie was looking up, so we talk about posterior, but that just basically means the baby's eyes are looking up towards the pubic bone. The baby's back is lying on the back of mother. And in actual fact, the baby's head is not totally spherical. It's actually a little bit ovoid or oval-shaped. So it's interesting that when the baby looks down, looking down towards the bottom, let's say, of the mother, the, the diameter that presents through the pelvis, so we talked about the pelvis being like the basketball hoop, is one, about half a centimetre to sometimes a centimetre less than if the baby's looking upright. Mm. So, you know, you're, comp- you're competing for space here. It's like pretty much like putting a jigsaw into a jigsaw puzzle. If you're trying to fit that in and it's just a little bit, it's just a little bit too big, you ain't going to be able to fit that jigsaw pieces together. And that often happens when the baby's lying in that posterior position or back-to-back looking up, that that head just doesn't want to fit into there. And so as a result, with that head not fitting into the pelvis, that head's not putting any pressure onto the cervix. And as a result of that, no, no pressure forming on that cervix, the cervix then doesn't dilate. And so this is the reason in part why over the period of sort of now, I think we're almost 10 hours, there's been no change in the cervix. No, well, you're way more, way more, yeah. Like way six, more. Yeah. yeah. I feel like this, is, uh, this, this story has got a lot more legs. And, you know, we tried to finish this whole thing in two parts and, you know, we're still on a cliffhanger. I don't even know what the outcome is yet. <laughs> I know that you've got a baby in your arm because I've seen that on Instagram. Yeah. But we're going to have to leave it there because this podcast will go for two hours and that leads us to a wonderful part three which is going to come up in the next episode next week. Amazing. <laughs> we look forward to it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Baby Baking and Kid Raising. 
If you'd like to suggest a guest or connect and see more of us, then head to Instagram at babybakingandkidraising. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so grateful if you could hit the subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever listening platform you use. Please note that the information provided in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of a qualified healthcare provider regarding your own pregnancy, birth and health conditions. Thank you.